0: Employee of the month. Here's your host, Katie Lazarus. Welcome to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. And if you're a virgin to the show, it's all about work. It's where we spend most of our time. So I just wanted to hear from people who genuinely and generally love what they do. It's why I'm thrilled to bring you my conversation with Cindy Shupak, the Emmy Award winning TV writer and executive producer of Sex and the City, as well as Everybody Loves Raymond and Modern Family. She's most recently written her second memoir. It's called The Longest Date, My Life as a Wife, and I really recommend you go out and read it it's funny and thoughtful and a phenomenal glimpse into what it's like to become a parent and the struggle to give birth as well as how hard marriage really is which i think makes it that much sweeter you may recognize some of her writings from modern love you can check her out in the new york times as well as on the radio She is just a wonderful storyteller. We talked a little bit about that as well. Okay, I'm going to stop listing all of the things because all you need to do is just hear our wonderful conversation and you'll know why I am beaming as I speak about her. Our conversation was taped live at the Writers Guild. Enjoy. Yeah, we were alive during the interview. I'm just, I didn't need to be a spoiler. I'm just letting you know. Enjoy. Congratulations on winning the
1: Employee of the Month award. And that is the one thing that I've been waiting to do i mean i'm not being sarcastic it's really exciting to me <laughs> to be in the company of the other people who have one employee of the month some of my favorite people well, i dad. love maria dizia jack black i've been listening and i feel very
0: very honored um well i'm i'm thrilled to, to um have you in their company as well and and Jack Black has not done the show yet, but... I mean, I'm sorry, I meant... Um, but he will Lew- now. I meant Louis Black. Lewis Black has definitely done the <laughs> One show. One of my <laughs> favorites. I'm so tired, I'm jet-lagged
1: from... Lewis Black, if you're listening, you are my favorite. I like you too, Jack Black, but I... That's how tired I am. You can do one of your funny faces and be upset (laughs) that you're confused with Jack Black.
0: (laughs) Now we'll have to get Jack Black on the show. That's totally fine. (laughs) I hadn't thought about it. But Mike White's done the show, so maybe we can ask Jack Black since they're they're friends. But I I really want to stress how good The Longest Date is. And I was telling Cindy um, before we were talking how everyone clamors to, to identify, to say that they, they get this book. It speaks to them personally because they had leprosy or they're um, allergic to yeast, whatever it is. <laughs> like you feel this identification so strongly. And I think that that's so indicative of you as a writer that people want to say, I get this. This is personal to me because of what you, Cindy, put out there. Um, it's so nice to hear. And I love
1: People always say you're probably tired of hearing this or you, you know, I don't really hear it very often as a writer. It was funny. I have a friend who's in security in Chicago and he was like, I'll do your security detail when you come. And I was like, yeah, writers just get mobbed. (laughs) I mean, you cannot stop the paparazzi. So for writers, especially with a book like this, that's so personal. It's a memoir about marriage and about our baby quest. You know, you have a fear when you're writing. Will anyone care? Is this just my story? And I'm just, you know, will anyone really care? Because... I feel like when you're single, you're, it's a very relatable and humbling and admirable journey to try to find love. When you're married, and I guess you're somewhat somewhat successful writer, and you know, it sort of feels like, will anyone care? Does it just feel like luxury problems? So it's so nice to me when I hear that people related to the, you know, fertility issues we went through, or just the adjustment to marriage, or that's really why I'm writing, and that's why I'm writing so personally is because that's the only way I know how to try to reach people. It's the opposite of a therapist where they're not supposed to talk about themselves. (laughs) I feel my best shot is to just be really honest about my own experience and not try to generalize about everyone's experience. And then hopefully people will read it and relate and
0: be glad I was honest. Well, you had spoken about that when you were writing for um, uh, Lady Mags, as I call them, (laughs) Um, you know, where they would want you to give prescriptive advice. And and you've always said you don't want to give prescriptive advice. You can always share your experience.
1: Yes. I mean, there's still the chance I will be divorced in a year. <laughs> I always am aware that I could become ironic at any moment. So I really don't feel like I'm qualified to tell people what to do. I really only feel qualified to share my experiences. And when I was writing about dating, yeah, I used to joke, you know, Why are they hiring me to do this? I've been single so long. Yes, I have a lot of experience, but the fact that I've been single so long should be indicative that I don't know what I'm doing. So it was funny to become an expert just out of longevity.
0: Well, and then (laughs) there's another issue as a writer that having self-awareness doesn't necessarily mean you have empathy for others. And in your case, you do. But you and I both know in the comedy world, many people who are uh, acutely self-aware but really have zero empathy for other human beings. And I think that you, you're able, your writing expresses um, both. I try time. to. I feel, uh, I just do feel empathy. I feel sometimes acutely,
1: sometimes um, staggeringly aware of how much worse a lot of people have it or what people have gone through. And this journey, especially trying to have a baby, made me so aware of what my friends had gone through before me and what people were going through now that in just a way I didn't understand. Um, And I think becoming a mom, I mean, it's sort of the essence of the book as I went from a bit self-centered control freak. I mean, I didn't know it at the time, but now I realize I was a slightly that way. I mean, I was always empathetic with dating, but I kind of saw that as the center of the world. And you know- It
0: was the center of the world. It was,
1: and it still is in a lot of ways, but it is still where my heart and loyalties lie sometimes with the single ladies. But But now I feel empathy for a much bigger, broader group, I think like dog owners, like mothers, like fathers, like children who have mothers, like people who have mothers, like for my parents, yes, (laughs) kind of for the whole world. It's like, I feel now I'm part of this big movement of people who have someone they have to take care of and put first and it kind of changes your, it makes you even more empathetic.
0: It's so interesting to hear because I have also felt a split. My my brother and his wife lost one of their kids, and they have two, and mm-hmm. um, my mom certainly went through that also losing kids. And so many people go through it in various ways, whether it's a miscarriage, whether it's not getting an adoption that they were up for, you know, there's loss involved. And then you have other people where it, it's just the babies slip out and they can't stop having them or whatever. It right. It's totally the optimum. <laughs> yes, yes which you use as
1: this. <laughs> that oh. was happening while we were trying. It was just like, really?
0: <laughs> she already had six and now <laughs> she has eight. <laughs> but it, it's the perfect analogy that you put put there. That, you know, why, it's so arbitrary, um, this miracle. Yeah. You know, and it's still a Yeah,
1: and I never got to the point where I... Um, I don't think I, I, I never felt like there was one pie we were all taking a slice of. So I never quite felt like when other people had babies, uh, except for the Octomom. I will admit feeling <laughs> slight animosity toward the Octomom. <laughs> but but in, I said in the book, um, because I'm not sure if it was because she had eight kids or because afterwards she did porn to support them. And the fact that she still had a body for porn just <laughs> felt like, really? <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> that aside... I do feel uh, you know I knew people going through fertility problems with their second kid and part of me wanted to say you have a kid already how could it be so but once you're in it you realize it means so much to you like what your idea of uh, you know and a loss however it happens whether it's a very early miscarriage or just not getting pregnant when you're trying or whether it's later is just still a loss it's like you're horrible and one thing I I feel I realized in writing this book and in talking to people and in just going through that journey was, um, not to compare. I feel like women do a little bit of a disservice saying, well, it's not as bad as what you went through, or I know you've had 15 misattempts at IVF and I've only had three or so you feel like you're not allowed to complain because other people have it harder or the opposite where you feel like you're the only one who can complain. But I usually feel that I shouldn't complain or I'm putting myself on some spectrum of, people's problems and I just finally decided it might not be as horrible as someone else but it's your horrible that's right. and that's how you have to treat your friends who are going through it you may not understand why having a second child is so treacherous for them but it
0: is <laughs> I think also like the difference between um, empathy and sympathy there Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just sort of obsessed with these topics right now. Yeah. I just saw this, like, I just watched a video the other day of this woman who was showing the difference. And, like, the sympathy is, like, shuts down the conversation of, like, well, Cindy, it's fine. You have this career. Or, like, what, you know, like, if yeah. something horrible happens to me, people will be like, you can use it in your routine. And yeah. you're like, yeah, I'd rather actually just have a job. <laughs> <laughs> like, Thanks so much. Like, yeah, you know, but, yeah. but, so that's where it, like, shuts down the conversation. Of you 15 IVFs or your loss is not, you know, where... Yeah. Um, I, I do think because you are so acutely aware of what's going on in the world and because you have this social awareness, it, 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 it's palpable in your writing and it comes out so that it is more than um, comforting to hear your story and, and I feel your bravery and your courage in sharing, um, but also it's just so funny too, the way that you talk about things. <laughs> I feel like I'm not being
1: funny enough this morning when I, when I do interviews. People, say. Funnier. But I'm really a comedy writer. I'm not a comedian so I don't feel like... What's the I'm... difference? Well, to me it's that if you're not laughing right now and you're like, how's her book so funny? Or whatever. <laughs> well, right. it is because when I'm writing I'm funnier. <laughs> 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 but I feel... Um, I'm not so much a performer, I don't go out and do stand-up or uh, even in the writer's room there's people who have been, when you're on a show in the writer's room, a lot of people have been stand-ups or just are really funny on Twitter and um, I feel like I'm just more of an observer and then I can kind of integrate it and figure out what's funny about it on the page.
0: What's so impressive about you is how uh, prolific you are in so many different mediums. Are you writing things down as they're happening? um sometimes
1: i used to i've started to trust that i'll remember stuff because i used to and now i have such scattered notebooks i don't know if it's because now i'm a mom, or but i was just trying to find notes on this project i'm working on and there were and like there are all these half incomprehensible notes that i'm like and i'm just hoping i remember what's important (laughs) or what's funny and the thing is i usually do remember the stories that really stick with me i mean i'm a little bit obsessed with this uh the biggest loser who now is being accused of being anorexic.
0: (laughs) Have you heard about this? No. She won The Biggest Loser. Yes, that's right. And and now she's
1: on the cover of magazines as, has she gone too far? And the judges were all horrified. And it just feels like we've taken this person who got on TV at her very highest weight, at her most embarrassing, gave herself over this process, and then maybe she got carried away. I don't know. We don't want to... But it's like, fuck you television. (laughs) don't you feel like she must just be like, I'm sorry, I... now have gone too far because she must have thought she was looking so great in the finale,
0: and then and then everyone turns on her. That's right. And well, that, and culture in general, how confusing it was is yeah. like we will only like you, and we will not only that we're going to reward you monetarily yeah.
1: if you become thinner. Yeah, and I started thinking about all those tabloid magazines which I read on flights, so it's my favorite part of traveling. Um, that they say either who's really fat. Poor Kim Kardashian, like she can't win. She's either or we're worried, we're very concerned about Angelina Jolie. She's skeletally thin. And I wonder, you know, it's just those are the two extremes we report.
0: <laughs> so how do you fill you, how do you fill your mind with all of those things and not take it personally? Because I, I don't read them because I, I end up feeling terrible after. You mean about yourself for yeah. digesting that? Yeah. Well, well and, and di- hold on I should preface <laughs> and digesting whatever piece of chocolate I was digesting oh, yeah, 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 yeah. while I was reading this.
1: <laughs> well, I kind of take it as comforting like it's a can't win. Like you're either so fat you're on the biggest loser. I mean, it's so ironic that the name is the biggest loser and you just you win and you're the biggest loser and now she's a loser cuz she, she's small. Right. The whole thing and why I brought that up is cuz that kind of thing sticks with me as sort of just an ironic interesting dynamic that could become something else, or could be an example when I'm telling a story of, like, a no-win situation, like the time when just certain things sort of stick with me as particularly funny or unfair, like the Autumon yes. when we were going through.
0: Well, um, and this Biggest Loser, both of these are, are yeah. fabulous. Um, you or know, when
1: I, there's a chapter in the book that's pretty tough about when we had the miscarriage, but I had gotten all these good luck things, and one thing I really remember, even at the time, was I was wearing this four-leaf clover bracelet, and then the paramedics had to they said, "Do you need that?" And I was like, "I guess I don't." And even in the moment, I was like, "This is so ironic and sad and weird that they're cutting off my four leaf bracelet." But that stuck with me as like, there's certain moments where you just—not where you're even approaching it as a writer necessarily, just as a person—you're looking at your life and thinking, "This is a moment I'll remember."
0: So I want to give our listeners like some some background. Your your the first show you wrote for was that Empty Nest? No, I my I.
1: I was living in New York, and I wrote okay. an essay for Modern Women, which doesn't exist anymore, but was, I mean, New York Woman. It was this great, I kind of got no memory anymore. Um, New York Woman was this great magazine that had a back page essay, kind of like Modern Love, or like the Lives column in the Times. And I, and I submitted one blindly that's in my first book, the Between Boyfriends book, and it's called Only in New York. And it got published, and it kind of started everything for me. Some, I had some magazine interest from that, and that led to other magazine pieces. And also, a producer saw it and told me to think about sitcom writing. So I came and sat in on the table read for Room for Two, which was Linda Lavin and Patricia Heaton, and was on briefly. How fun. And I didn't know when I was invited to do that if I was like putting brads in the script or punching. I didn't understand anything about the process, if I was there to punch up or just serve coffee
0: <laughs> but um this they, is my dream by the way that someone's going to read an essay of mine and hire me to well, write for tv you but. know i didn't even do
1: it i didn't do it for that reason but i now think it is a great flair because an essay is first person so it's your sense of humor i mean the show you're doing like you put out your point of view and sense of humor and sometimes someone will know what to do with it then easier than like a fiction piece or something else so the, i think they just liked my perspective on new york because this piece was all about new york and they were the show was set in new york and then i ended up taking a class and getting on really bad shows for a while like uh, i was on baby talk and then i was on the mommies i was on the show with Dudley moore really unknown shows and i finally got on coach and then i got an empty nest was like somewhere in the middle i got a okay. freelance for that but i remember you know, coach i got on coach which at least people had heard of and then phil rosenthal was working on coach and he created everybody loves Raymond. Yeah and brought me over there. And then I had been working with a partner, and I wanted to go off on my own. So Phil let me and my partner both write separate. Everybody Loves Raymond's.
0: Was that hard to do, to separate from your writing partner? It's hard. It's like a breakup. I mean,
1: it's hard professionally a little bit, because everything you've done in television, at least, is joint. So you have to then prove what you can do on your own. So that's why it was such a gift Phil let us write separate scripts for Raymond, So we had to produce script with our own names on it so people could see what we did but for me it was kind of um, fortuitous that I had been doing these magazine pieces along the way because they were finally like these great samples of what I could do and the other thing I was gonna write as a sample of my own because I had been working with a woman who was older than me and married and had kids so we hadn't really worked on single shows or
0: And I heard she only went through seventeen IVF
1: treatments. (laughs) She was going through an ugly divorce, so it was so it's fine as long as she's suffering in some way. She was suffering for sure. But so she she was going. She um, we had written shows more like her sensibility, I would say, or just hadn't written about anything that felt too close to my experience. And so I was going to write a spec Sex in the City. And then my friend Jenny Bix was on that show, and she said you should freelance one. And so while I was on Raymond, I freelanced an episode of Sex and the City, and then I decided to join them. And it was just so freeing and fun to, like, work on a show that was really my experience. I was exactly the age the girls were supposed to be then. Well, the girls but Samantha. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and so I could use everything. And, uh, and also, it was my first time on a single-camera show, which is filmed more like a movie. So it was really grown-up feeling, and coming back to New York...
0: It was just an amazing experience. It feels like you went to the best summer camp ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, all of us are like, I mean, I had fun at I thought I had fun at camp. <laughs> and then I look at this job, and I realize, because I was, I was looking at all the folks. You guys continue to work together on various projects, uh, the writing staff, this yeah. sort of core group of women. And I thought, wow, they really mentored each other really got along great and continue to do stuff. Is that correct? That is that is
1: correct. Those are just some of my favorite people ever. It was such an amazing lightning in a bottle moment. I mean, I knew Jenny Bix before. I had met Darren Starr. Michael Patrick King is just a gift from God. So it was so amazing to work with him. And I'm still friends with him. He was the best man at my wedding, my best man. <laughs> and all the girls were like my wedding posse, I called them, but Julia and Elisa and Liz Tuchillo and Julia Sweeney consulted on that show. And we had this amazing comedian, Judy Toll, who, who died too early, but she was on staff with us till the very end of her life. And it was so amazing to just have her stories and her raucous sense of humor. And, you know, we had people, we went through that. That was cancer and um and Jenny Bix had gone through. She's talked openly about it, breast cancer. So we, and then we had friends, parents die, and all that kind of went into the show, like Miranda's mother's funeral, and um, and we've stayed very good friends. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: I I, I loved that. Uh, you know, she got breast cam- cancer. My mother got breast cancer for the first time at 28, and then 35, and now it is something that's talked about. But it's talked about in major part because of Sex in the City. You know, that's exciting to be part of. The international discussion or the national discussion, at least.
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, it was so great to have Samantha. You know, we had to really think about. We didn't want to tug at heartstrings for any other reason than to bring this issue to light. But it just started to seem like there's enough people in our writers' room who have who have gone through this, let alone friends we've had. Or, so it felt like we'd be almost remiss not to talk about it at a certain point.
0: Um, I, I, ha- did you know that you would be part of a a national or international or global, this large societal conversation when you were writing on the show? Did no, you No, I think that would have been
1: probably too stifling <laughs> to think about. <laughs> Did you know that
0: you changed the political
1: agenda for the rest of the that world? That is exactly <laughs> what we set out to do every day.
0: <laughs> I didn't mean to I didn't mean to ask such a charged question, but I I but it is. I hope in hindsight, gives you no, s- I, some joy to it know does, that, that it you does. had so much relevance. No, I,
1: I mean, it's thrilling to travel internationally and know how I've touched people, just to know how universal those themes were. It means so much to me to have been a part of it. I'm, I couldn't be prouder to have been a part of that. And I feel, I mean, even things that we wrote about, like we wrote about the fertility stuff with Charlotte before I was going through that. And I even look back at that and think, wow, we really got that. And a lot of that was... Michael Patrick King knowing women who had been through it but you know so even in hindsight I'm like oh this was a really helpful relevant show even more so than I maybe realized at the moment and then there were so it continues to kind of give me pride.
0: After you leave such a uh, beautiful production something that you can feel proud of on the outside and then also you clearly formed these gorgeous bonds uh you know really thoughtful friendships and and um It just seems like an ideal work situation. Yes, there's no, uh, yeah, it's like peaking at 10 or something. (laughs) Yeah, so what do you do at age 11 And you're like, oh, so wait a minute, the rest of the world doesn't work this way?
1: Yeah, I feel like I put in... For me, it wasn't as bad because I had really put, paid my dues. I'd been on a lot of shows. I'd been through a marriage, which I cover in this book, to a guy who realized he was gay, and that's why I was single for so long. So I had um, kind of been through the ringer and felt like I'd worked my way up to Sex in the City, and so I appreciated it in the moment. I mean, I was every day grateful to be there amazed at how well it worked together amazed by the talent and the people i got to spend my days with and that we got to be in new york and it was like as good as it could be it was as if i as if i was dying that's how i was living like that show. <laughs> so i don't have any regrets about taking it for granted
0: no i meant afterwards how do you deal because a lot of people after theater productions will feel very sad and they actually have yeah. um you know, a, a postpartum type of, yes. of depression. And I was curious, you're you're your leaving what is an ideal work situation in every sense of the word. Um, how did you cope after that?
1: Yeah, I know, I mean I mean I was making that point just to say that some of my friends like Julian Elisa was one of their first T V shows, maybe their first. So I really thought about how are they going to cope because there will never be this good again. I know <laughs> from years of working in television, this is the pinnacle and they're just starting and now they have nowhere to go but down. Um, but that's not true. They've done wonderful things. But So it was easier for me to just be grateful I had it. I mean, it really it felt like a good full five years for me. I joined the second season, and I know that sounds hard to say but i was just so grateful i had it it still makes it it's still the bar by which all else is judged but even so i just feel lucky i was part of it and that i had that and that i know what it feels like to be on a show that's working so well and that is touching people and that's so fun to produce i i have this um template for what i would love it to be and Maybe it won't be that again, but at least, like, you know. It's like being in a good relationship. You you know what it's supposed to feel like, and then all those bad relationships you were rationalizing, suddenly you're like, oh, that's not what love is supposed to feel like. So that's what I feel about television now.
0: took me until 37 (laughs) (laughs) to to figure that out. How do you go from writing to managing a staff? Because I feel like television is the only place in which you're like, you're a really good writer. Let's put you in charge of people. Yes, that is such a crazy
1: situation. Mitch Hurwitz who's a great TV writer. He did Um, Arrested
0: Development for folks who who are not in the TV world but get to um, watch it and enjoy it.
1: He told me, he came to visit me once when I was doing a show called Madigan Men with Gabriel Byrne. And it was just kind of short-lived, but it filmed in New York, and it was three generations of Irish men. And I had created it, and it was really difficult um, because the network had so many notes every day. I mean, at one point, I think they told me, we don't just want a few asterisks on the page, which is how you mark what you've changed. So, they're basically just saying, We want a lot of changes. (laughs) We don't care what they are, but we want this to be very different. Um, So, it was really hard. And Mitch Hurwitz came to see me and he said, It's a crazy situation that you're supposed to run a show and be a writer. It's like you're a writer, but you also have to run a 7 and 11. and you don't know how to run a Seven Eleven. You don't know how this, how the machines work to make the ICs. and you know. And it's true. It's kind of like a whole other set of skills that, on top of the writing, you're suddenly in charge of really everything. Hiring directors, making sure that the writers are happy, and even just moving from a writer on a show to the showrunner is a big. Just managing the writing is a big step, but as a showrunner, you're managing every aspect. So. Forgetting all the other aspects, which are like running a 7-Eleven. You're um, If you work until 4 a.m. doing a rewrite, as a writer on staff, you can go home and be tired and complain about staying till 4 a.m. But if you're the showrunner, I was aware, so tomorrow Gabriel Byrne gets the script, and is he going to be okay with it? Is the network going to see enough asterisks? What if they don't like it? <laughs> like, I never left the job, really, so it's very different. And maybe, you know, I just generalized but there's always a lot written about why there aren't enough women showrunners and women directors and you know I think if you're a feeling person and I'm not gonna say men don't feel (laughs) but if you do care and you can't compartmentalize as easily or let's just say if you don't have a wife at home taking care of the rest of your life it's really hard it's a big big job it's an exhausting job and um, I don't know I I don't i it's not that women can't do it but it's certainly challenging
0: (laughs) well it becomes a question of do you want to do that at that point too right you are are, it's a herculean herculean effort yes uh, to do what you do how many shows have you created just a few and everything's a bit short-lived but
1: i created madigan men and then i created love by Bi- i've love done Bites. some pilots that yeah. didn't get to series like i did something called him and us with elton john producing that was amazing it felt like a crazy make a wish foundation situation where i wasn't dying but i was getting to fly on the jet with elton john and go to concerts and write about an aging rock star and his um longtime manager it was just a blast to film it didn't get on the air but i'm still very proud of it and um So I filmed a few pilots that didn't get on the air, but I created Madigan Men, which was like 13 episodes and then went off the air. That was on ABC. And then I created Love Bites. Yes. Which I write about in the book and which is available on Amazon now. Yeah, it's great. I'm still really proud of it. There was an original pilot that I wish I could get available because the Becky Newton before she got pregnant. So Mm -hmm. the storyline became she was a surrogate and it was part of my story and journey that the show i created about a virgin the last virgin in virginia she got pregnant right when we the show got on the air so we had to change her storyline but what we filmed before i really loved also the other two stories stayed exactly the same but her story was different it never got on the air because she became pregnant we
0: changed it but it was very uh funny to, to read about, but I'm sure it was very difficult to deal
1: with. <laughs> it was. I was kind of in denial about how difficult that was to deal with, and I was in my, like, I would just be joyful for people not really realizing my entire show has to change. And, um, but if you if anyone's listening to this and wants to check out Love Bites, I'm so proud of it. I mean, I feel like the first, I, I wrote the first and last episode, I ended up having to step down for just to recover. It was like the way, uh, yes. it, you'll just understand if you read the book, why everything conspired to just make me unable to to manage that at the time but I um, but I had great showrunners running it in the meantime and I still was like reading scripts and consulting and I'm feel really proud of the series because it's the kind of a modern love American style
0: and you berate yourself for being a control freak and and not wanting to be part of the, the rest of the world and you know hang out with the dogs and the people in the <laughs> neighborhood stuff that I, I do all the time but because I do all that stuff all the time I don't run shows And and so I'm just curious, you know, how much of that have you maintained now that you are open to the world? And and this book talks so beautifully about how your husband and daughter and a dog opened you up to sort of, you know, being a little bit more open to just hanging out with people, you know, and being a part of the community. Right, yeah, you know, that's that's a nice perspective on it that I just, um,
1: yeah, because I do feel, I mean, I know movie stars and TV stars, you understand that they're going to wear a baseball cap and not talk to you in public because they're very busy and they don't want to be bothered. I don't know if it's
0: that they're very busy. They don't (laughs) necessarily want to be bothered. Right.
1: busy people movie stars
0: please accept that
1: they're busier than you because they're doing movies um i know that's actually
0: terrible. have like such a plum life no i was gonna say the opposite but i can understand them not want to be bothered that i get but so
1: my original not wanting to be bothered was not like i felt more important or anything but yeah i guess it was like i just wanted my time to just and a lot of my writing is just in my head and it used to be my quiet house and now i really yeah, it's interesting. I have a lot less time to myself to just ruminate. But I feel there's a different kind of thing I'm sort of privy to, which is listening to everyone's stories and being part of lives and being part of the real world, which I feel like can be the death, the metaphorical death of a writer if you stop paying attention to what's going on around you. So in that way, I feel lucky that I'm a little more in tune with what people are talking about and doing. And you know, I know that because I'm actually talking to people <laughs> Yeah. But I do feel if things come together, like with the show I'm working on or this movie I'm trying to do, that I will get too busy and become unfriendly and a bad friend again.
0: Well, p- <laughs> part of it is also logistical, though. I mean, you know... And you, you just don't have time. You just don't have time. Meaning, I understand if you're talking about an egotistical writer who's so, you know, his head <laughs> is so up his ass that he can't even bother, you know... Uh, listening to other people, and then his writing suffers. Uh, we've all read those guys, and, and sadly, some of us have dated them. But, <laughs> but, it, it, but logistically, in terms of running a show and, you know, when they finally come, I have all my books ready for, you know, when I finally make it or whatever. <laughs> but it would be hard to then also ha- enjoy life and have the balance yeah. when you're finally getting those offers to write this article, write this column, write this book, create this show. Yeah, I it's something I'm struggling with
1: because um, I'm finding, forget the general public, just in my own house, yes. my husband and my child and my dog and the people that have come to love me and want some of my time. Also, it's hard to figure out how to balance that with a career. And then I feel like, and then my friendships, which I always felt like were totally solid, fine. I don't have to worry about my friendships. Like I, now I feel like I haven't been the best friend. I'm neglected. I've just sent mass emails that sound you know, braggy because I don't have time to explain. (laughs) So I feel like I'm constantly insecure about not being good enough in one area or another of either my friendships or my family or my extended family or, you know, there's some area I'm falling down
0: in. I'm so good to, glad to know, you know, relieved that you can just feel some source of self-hatred. I'm glad that Judy is oh my has, God, yes. ...its roots have, have kicked in. <laughs> of course. You can't oh, relish... clothing. It's a huge part of my process. <laughs> well, okay, that I want to talk about, too, a little bit, because I really suffer with it. Uh-huh. And I feel like some people sort of wear it as, like... Um, a badge that they think is kind of funny to wear, but then they really don't suffer from it. Yeah. You
1: you have to really suffer. Yeah, I know. (laughs) No, I truly, I'm so insecure all the time. I'm always checking how I wrote things or came off or what I said or thinking, feeling stupid or, I mean, I grew up in Oklahoma, so I have a slight feeling always that I don't know everything I'm supposed to know. I mean, for a long time I said, um, the theater the movie theater <laughs> and only like much later in life did I realized people were saying theater and that was like what we said in Oklahoma the movie theater <laughs> and so there's always things like that where I'm like oh my god my I'm being totally exposed is this idiot or you're using the word wrong or I'm um, or really genuinely I mean I still I still have times in the writers room when you go on a new show like I was on Modern Family for a year yes how is that um, it was challenging because my insecurities kind of got the best of me because they've had a lot. I mean, it was great because I love that show and I watched it as a fan and I loved writing it. And I wrote three episodes while I was there for that year that I'm really proud of and I contributed. And But I was like the new kid in school every day because it was a really tight staff and it was mostly male. There was one other woman. They'd kind of been through a lot of other women. A lot of women. Yeah, they've been, I mean... People don't talk about it, but I'm talking about it because um, it's a great show and it's very well written, but it's just, it was a tough place to walk into as the new girl who wasn't like the young new girl. I was kind of like, I don't know what I was. <laughs> and I really had to question every day. I thought, like I said too much, or I didn't say enough or I should be careful. And then I thought I'm over worrying. And then it turns out, no, you're actually bugging some people. <laughs> you know, It was a very tricky situation to go into every day. And that was after sex in the city. So I'm you know, and I don't know anyway it's
0: very cathartic to hear though on on the other end of you know just hoping to break in because um, I have heard many rumors about that show um, <laughs> of having that d- dilemma of of not having women uh, stay
1: um, you know they it's i I don't it my it was partly my fault because i was you know i I thought when i when I wrote the book. I thought so many of these stories I'm telling in the book would have been great stories to pitch there. And there was just something about um, the room there that I felt nervous to pitch. It just wasn't the best match for me. So it wasn't necessarily a bad place for women. I mean, there's women who've done great. Elaine Coe's still there. She was mentored by those guys, and I still think it's an amazing show, and I like so many of the writers there, all the writers there. I mean, I have nothing. I just feel like it wasn't
0: a great match
1: but it's still hard not to feel like you failed or you Absolutely. should have done better or to feel every day. I mean,
0: I, I wanted to say that it was cathartic to hear that someone who should never feel that way, should never feel so insecure <laughs> considering um, how much work they've done, I mean, how much you have done that people love, you still do have to wonder about the fit. Yeah. Is this the right environment for me?
1: Yeah, and you're not always. Um, You know, it's just, it's kind of like a dinner party and everybody has the experience of like, sometimes you go someplace and you feel like the shiniest person in the room and you're so happy and you're so funny and you feel very smart. And then other times you just have a really insecure night and it's kind of just the dynamic of the crowd. The TV show has this dinner party dynamic that you're living for a year. You're with these people in the room all day long. So, you know,
0: just, it can, it's different on different shows. Um, You had started speaking before about the, film that you're working on and the tv show that you're working on and the longest date is also being adapted yes i am adapting it which seems so funny because i felt so sure that was
1: the right form for it to be autobiographical and just my words and uh, you know not try to fictionalize and then i thought if if it ever got adapted someone else should do it because i'm too close to it and then when i was meeting on tv shows jake hasden who
0: who he does the new girl folks who don't know and a a ton of other shows Yeah and he just
1: directed a new movie Sex Tape that will be out that's going to be really funny and he did Bad Teacher. He's Lawrence Kasdan's son Lawrence Kasdan who did Big Chill and directed um, Grand Canyon, great movies so he liked the book and had kids himself and had you know was newly married and just thought that should be the show, a, a modern take on marriage and um And actually, in fictionalizing it, just changing the characters' names and being open to other people's stories, blending in with mine. So if you have a staff, you can have everybody's Mary stories. And also creating characters, satellite characters that could tell the other stories. And um, in a way, the show might be able to be i'm so afraid to say this because i thought this would be the big secret but i think i might be able to be more honest about some things like my parents um in a television show (laughs) than i could be in a autobiographical book (laughs) and then there'll be other actors playing them and they'll have other names and they'll have other experiences from other writers so it will all be very unclear which part of it is exactly you know my parents but you're free to use these stories that you maybe are nervous to tell exactly, in a fictional way. I feel like my book has turned into just a great personal ad for my husband. (laughs) I kind of over, maybe I overcorrected it. Now he sounds so dreamy. (laughs) Did you think that? Like, were you like, I would like to meet a guy like this? Or were you, could you see why he was frustrating?
0: I have to be honest. I was reading your book as I was starting to date um, the man who I'm now madly in love with. And I stuck it out and went through a lot of the fears uh, that you have. In major part because of your book. (laughs) Oh, that's so
1: nice. I'm so happy to hear that. And it means you won't be trying to steal my husband. (laughs) No. (laughs) Hopefully that's what will happen to everyone who reads it. They will fall in love with someone else. But a few people have told me, wow, he sounds amazing and dreamy. And I'm like, look <laughs> I already told them you're not allowed to yep. meet someone new from my book.
0: We need to get you a bigger ring. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that you can you can have that on there or some type of they must have some type of security force field now we have they have with dogs, you know, that you can um a fence, an electric fence, maybe even yeah. an electric fence for your that, husband. Yeah, because yeah. he's lost weight. He looks amazing right now.
1: He's gotten even cuter. I don't I don't know what he's doing. He's preparing to leave me. <laughs> don't
0: I don't want you to joke about that. Don't okay, worry gonna, about it. <laughs> I,
1: I won't. I won't joke about it. I'm in love with him, and he's in love with me.
0: <laughs> Is that terrible for me to be like? Don't joke about that. But <laughs> I don't feel that way about it on any subject. You can joke about Hitler. You can joke about Rwanda. <laughs> and here I am telling you not to joke about I, your husband leaving. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like
1: it diffuses it for me to joke about it rather than to have it.
0: Well, it is overwhelming to date a guy who's super cute. I mean, I I dated, you know, a musician, a couple musicians. It's very hard.
1: Yeah. I know, and gay men especially. I feel very dismissed by gay men who are hitting on him <laughs> gay men it's who've always horrible. been my good friends <laughs> now are kind of like why is he with her <laughs> even if he's straight
0: <laughs> it is a really awful feeling yeah it's, you know it's interesting that you say that i remember in tina Fey's book she had two pages one about being really thin and one about being overweight uh-huh. and everyone should experience both yes yeah it's true And I think that that's true, this uncanny feeling of how her friends would suddenly hit on her Uh that she was thin. Yeah. And how gross that was. Yeah. Um, And I think there's a similar thing to have friends just openly flirt with your significant other, male
1: or female. Yeah, you feel very dismissed, like, you you know, I can take her or something. Yes. (laughs) I mean, it should just be a compliment. I think Ian sees it as a compliment when he notices men noticing me or flirting with me. It's totally great. But, um, yeah, for a woman, I think maybe I'm just insecure.
0: No, I think it's a vulnerability for us, but we're supposed to be known for being beautiful and the sexy one and the prize. And then all of a sudden, when we prize sexuality and sensuality as much, we're suddenly shifting those dynamics, and it's like, well, can you please get off? I'm like a Latino male. I will, like, (laughs) bat you down. (laughs) Like, could you step
1: away from my man? <laughs> I've been a, there. Was a party we were at where this woman who was recently divorced, she was just so openly flirting with Ian and just ignoring me completely. And I was getting so annoyed, really, at the ignoring of me. Because yes. it just felt like, hey, he's my, I'm right here. Stop trying to dance with him. And he was just like, she's fine, whatever. And I was like, she is completely marginalizing me. And just, just like, yeah, I needed yes. kind of a Latino thing. I need some kind of sister step off kind of moment. We need to get you a bat. You know, yeah. Something you can just, portable. And, and then when your
0: daughter's there, be like, I don't believe in violence. I just want you to know, this is, this is not usual for mom.
1: But in order to keep your dad in our family, I'm going to carry this bat. <laughs>
0: I promise that you will come back on the show. This has been such a delight to have you on. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. I really want to encourage people to go out and read The Longest Date, Life as a Wife. Um, if you or anyone you know have struggled with uh, being in a marriage, what it means to be in a marriage, infertility, what it means to adopt, what it means to struggle, and also <laughs> love the people who you're struggling with, um, that's really the beauty of this book uh, is that it, it shows how how hard it is to live um, in the in-betweens. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you do so with such a plum. It's, uh, it, you will laugh, you'll cry. Or I laughed and I cried. And if you don't laugh and cry, then you can send the book to me and I'll reimburse you. <laughs> um, I think it's that great. Thank you so much, Cindy Schupack. It was wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. Thank you so much to Ian Mazel for editing this together. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a nice review on iTunes. If you're in New York, come to a live taping. The next two are April 10th and May 3rd. Either way, thank you so much, and I hope that this interview inspired you to either finish that novel, quit your day job, maybe get a day job, or self-medicate. And if it's self-medicating, don't do it alone. I'm available for a drink.